Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking five fitness myths busted. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 67 of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we're going to do some myth busting of some random fitness myths that we decided to put together for you here. (laughs) So, Nicole, shall we get started? We shall. Ladies and gentlemen, myth number one, fat burners lead to significant changes in body composition. Nicole, I think this one goes along the lines of people looking for a magic pill. Yeah, of course. And thinking they can do things faster. Listen, I came up in the world of supplements initially and bodybuilding where I had worked in a supplement store and fat burners were always the big buy and the big push. And they still are, I think, you know, in stores that'll give you commission, you get the most commission out of you know, a lot of these fat burners that are, you know, pushed heavily by these companies. And Mm -hmm. I do recall, and I believe we've talked about this on a previous episode where HydroxyCut had this formulation that caused some serious health issues. And there Mm -hmm. was a major lawsuit with this product and it was causing liver failure essentially because at the time, it was a more is better. And, and this was industry wide. It wasn't just. So one wait, company. was this because hydroxy, the dose was deadly? It was just, listen, he, here's the thing. Ingredients. I mean, you've got a ton of different ingredients and you don't really have adequate research to even show the safety of one single, of the single nutrients in here or single ingredients in here. Mm-hmm. And then you're combining like 23 other ingredients. OK, got it. Right. So who knows what what was going on? Mm -hmm. Were they interacting with each other? Was it just one ingredient? Like nobody knows and nobody will probably ever know because there's not enough research on this stuff. Yeah. So the point that I'm trying to make here is not a case that there aren't necessarily certain ingredients that are somewhat backed by research because there are. And we're going to get into those in a moment. Mm hmm. But the case that I'm going to make here, and here's what I used to always say, and I still stand behind this. If you're going to take a fat burner and let's say you've got a 30 pound weight loss goal, Mm -hmm. just to throw out a goal, because this this is the number I always use, because anytime I had to compete in bodybuilding, I basically always had a 30 pound weight loss goal. Okay. so and that was over the course of like 12 to 16 weeks. Yeah. Why? That's that's like uh, I mean, that's typical bodybuilding. Yeah, you know me. I don't like that. It's it's bodybuilding. It's not it's not something that I'm like sitting here coaching my clients to say, hey, lose this because that's not sustainable. Right. So that's a different conversation. Yeah. Okay. 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 But if you've got a 30 pound weight loss goal, you might lose 30 and a half or 31 pounds from start to finish. Natural. No, no, no. Taking a fat burner. Wait, so if you're going to lose 30 pounds, are you with me here? No, back up. I'm confused. If you're going to lose 30 pounds on your own through diet and exercise, yes. you might lose an extra 
half a pound to a pound okay. taking a fat yes. burner, right? Thank so you. This That's is what why I thought I you say, were saying. So this is why I'll say fat burners don't lead to significant changes in body composition. And add to that, it's not a replacement for diet and exercise. You cannot eat in a calorie surplus and think mm-hmm. that a fat burner is going to be that magic pill that's going to get you to where you need to go. It's just not okay. going to happen. There is nothing yes. that is that powerful, that is that <laughs> almighty, that is going to get you where you need to go. But there are some ingredients that are shown to boost metabolism and or increase lipolysis, which is your body's ability to break down fat or mobilize fat. Can you define boost metabolism? Increase metabolic rate. So increase by a certain percentage. Okay. So increasing how many calories you burn or, you know, how the efficiency at which you metabolize things. Right. And your percentage of that would be how much this is my point is I want people to understand when, when you say boost metabolism, people think boost means catapult them into the stratosphere of right. epic so, change. So the number I have here for caffeine is increased by 11% as much as as high as 11%. Now, obviously, this is going to be case by case. But if you take a cohort of mm-hmm. X number, of, let's say 30 people, and you average out their increased metabolic activity, then you're looking mm-hmm. at an average of 11%. Now, it could be okay. there could be outliers there, there could be a 5%, there could be a 15%. Right. And then we're just averaging mm-hmm. it out to say, well, roughly about 11%. So caffeine is probably the only or one of the only ingredients that's shown to do this to boost metabolism. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a central nervous system stimulant. So we do know that if you're taking a stimulant that is going to increase your metabolic rate, it does have some impact on BMI. It does have some impact on body fat percentage, and it does have some impact on total weight lost. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind that in order to lose fat, there's an energy balance process here that you need to be aware of and you need to be taking in less energy than you are expending. There is nothing that you can be taking that is going to increase your output, right? Essentially, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. We're talking about increasing your the other side of the equation. Yeah. So energy in, it's not affecting that. If anything, it's going to increase the amount of energy going out. Mm-hmm. But there's also kind of a issue here if you're somebody who's consistently taking in caffeine yes on a on a regular basis it's probably not going to be as beneficial as for somebody who is not a regular coffee drinker or not a regular caffeine consumer Mm -hmm. so nicole for you that might boost your metabolism a bit Mm -hmm. because it's going to increase your uh, central nervous system but for me somebody who drinks i probably two to three i don't even want to say cups because I'm like 20 ounce cups. So like two (laughs) to three of those daily right now, somebody who does that is probably not going to be as effective to let's say maybe take a fat burner with, you know, caffeine in it. Yeah. I've used caffeine before, like added it back into my food plan to help me. Doesn't help me sleep, but it definitely makes me go. (laughs) Yeah. And now listen, caffeine is an effective ergogenic aid. It helps to increase, Mm -hmm. uh, decrease muscle increase muscular endurance. It helps to increase, you know, your strength output It's put into every pre-workout except yeah. for the non-stim pre-workouts, obviously, but it is something that is considered a viable ergogenic Ooh. aid, right? Yeah. So there is that. Okay. The next one we've got on our list is green tea. 
mm-hmm. which we're talking ingredients that are commonly found in fat burners. We'll kind of put it like that. Yeah. So the next one is green tea and the benefits of green tea are contributed to, contributed to catechins, which they're shown to increase lipid oxidation or lipolysis, like I said. And that is what is related to fat burning pathways. And it's it's in a dose dependent manner. So if you look at some of the research around green tea extract and consuming catechins, uh, significant effects in humans are noted only at high doses, such as 400 to 500 milligrams. And most green tea extract supplements, green tea alone is going to be about 50% of that. So you'd have to double the dosage of that. Mm-hmm. The fat burning effects are highly synergistic, almost dependent on not consuming caffeine habitually. So again, if you're a regular coffee drinker, might well, the not same kind of thing is caffeine. Right? It's caffeine in the green tea. That it's is caffeine in the green tea, right? So it's a combination of the caffeine and the catechins, which is going to yield an effect. But if you're a regular coffee drinker, it's not really going to affect you as much. Yeah. There is a fat reducing effect associated with green tea, but it's minor and unreliable in the research. So it's kind of tough to say. Uh, There's also a slight but unreliable increase in fat oxidation where your body may favor using a greater percentage of fat over glucose when supplementing with green tea catechins. Again, the research isn't vast on this. So it's kind of like, all right, well, just would you rather take this? It's not going to be your magic pill. It's going to be you're going to have to diet and exercise. There's no way around this. Yeah. And I think that's a common misconception that people just think, oh, well, I'm just taking a fat burner and I'm going to lose X amount of pounds. Right. Yeah. Susie Susie over there took this fat burner and sits on the couch and thinks it's going to just melt off. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's nothing that's going to do that. You want that get lipo and you're good to go. And even then that doesn't work. Yeah. And then you get listen, I knew somebody that had lipo twice. And you just if you don't work on your habits, you're going to gain the fat back. The fat cells, you're just going to eat your way to more fat. All right. The next one is yohimbine. This is something that is commonly used. Uh, Fat mass is reduced with yohimbine ingestion and appears to affect both obese and lean individuals. Uh, Dosages of 0.2 milligrams per kilogram of body weight have been successfully used to increase fat burning without significant implications on cardiovascular parameters and the like heart rate and, and blood pressure. And the reason why I say that is because if we're talking, taking it for taking it by weight, like milligrams per kilogram, there's a threshold in which it's just going to be too much of a stimulant for you. Mm -hmm. And then you might have, you might run into some issues there. Yeah. So if you are a 150 pound person taking 14 milligrams, or a 200 pound person taking 18 milligrams or 250 pound person taking 22 milligrams. There's a threshold above that, that, you know, it's going to be too much of a stimulant and it's going to drastically affect your heart rate and blood pressure. And essentially this is what we're looking at here. Just like the effects of something like caffeine, it's mm-hmm. a central nervous system stimulant and anything that is stimulating your central nervous system is going to increase your metabolic rate. So it's going to increase that side of the equation, which is the output. But I would argue that you can also, and probably more effectively focus on that side of the scale, right? When we're looking at uh, the model of energy in versus energy out, usually we're looking at like a, uh, a balance beam, right? Mm-hmm. Like that kind of a scale where on one end is intake and decreasing your caloric intake. And on the other end is increasing your caloric expenditure. 
and you can add an extra day of the week of working out. Mm-hmm. And that is going to have a greater outcome, a better health promoting outcome. It's going to make your body more resilient. We always talk about resiliency, right? It's mm-hmm. going to create a stress that's beneficial. It's going to increase lean muscle mass. And over that period of time, when you're increasing lean muscle mass, you're getting a greater return long term yeah. on your basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate. However, you want to kind of word it interchangeable, but not really interchangeable. But you're going to get a greater outcome long term because you're going to be holding more muscle. You're not going to have to take a supplement later on to have that effect. Exactly. So naturally boosting your body's ability, boosting your body's ability to create a stronger metabolism is better than if you're utilizing something to unnaturally boost it in the short term. Yeah. I mean, listen, boosting, naturally boosting the boost of your metabolism. But (laughs) I guess my point is part of the reason why fat burners make me very nervous, specifically with clients, the females that I see is because they'll use it for a short term or they'll they'll come to me be like, can will this help? And I always explain that it's it's a teeny amount compared to all the hard work that you're going to put in. But if you put that teeny bit of that teeny amount from the fat burner into a little bit more of your work capacity, you actually over the long term will be more of a benefit because it's actually happening by your habits, behaviors. And like you say, building muscle and creating those changes versus thinking, even if you take it for the a shorter period of time, it's it's a false sense of success, I think. Well, here's the thing. You're going to have to do the same amount of work either way. Correct. But that's but my point is that little extra boost that you think you're getting, you can put into the work, like use it in the work capacity, work a little harder, build a little more muscle, yeah, lift a little I'm, heavier. Like- I mean, listen, I, I will argue a case for uh, things that stimulate your central nervous system and keep you more awake and alert when you're in a calorie deficit, because sometimes you're in a calorie deficit and you, yeah, f- you get well, a little bit tired, competi- you get competitors you get fatigued a little bit quicker. Yeah. Right. And it just gives you that extra boost you need to push through a workout. I'm going to be realistic about this. I'm not just yes. going to shit on ingredients just for the sake of saying, oh, well, fat burners are bad, like everybody always says, right? But I will say that there are some ingredients that will give you that extra boost. And if you need that Mm -hmm. extra kick in the ass or or you need that extra little bit more energy because, you know, you're kind of lagging. It's the same thing, same concept of using a pre-workout. I I would say don't rely on a pre-workout, but on days that you're tired and, and you're like, man, I just had a really long, stressful day and I know I have to get my workout in. If you need a scoop of pre-workout to get you through that workout, yeah. then by all means, take a scoop of pre-workout, but don't be dependent on that for your results because it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, it's like anything else that we talk about in terms of long-term change. We don't want to make good versus bad. We don't do it with food. We don't want to do it with this type of stuff either. I guess bad is the wrong word. I just don't want people to rely on it. I think that's a better way to say it. Because listen, it's not this or that, right? It's you can use certain tools at your disposal to kind of help you along the way with your results, but you're going to need to focus on the biggest chunk of it is always going to be your diet and exercise. Yeah. Okay. Now, a couple of other ingredients, uh, synephrine, which has been notoriously for years and years and years in some of these products, which is a bitter, it's called, it's also called bitter orange extract, which it hasn't really been entirely validated in research. So I'm just going to say that about it. And then there's L-carnitine, which L-carnitine is 
put in some of these products and it's is also mainly sold by itself mm-hmm. as like a liquid form. Nicole, we've seen this amongst competitors a lot. Yeah. And okay. I've talked about this time and time again, and I'm going to beat a dead horse here because the thought behind L-carnitine, once again, is that L-carnitine is because it's necessary in your body. There's something called the carnitine shuttle where L-carnitine will bind to fatty acids to shuttle them into the mitochondria to be used for energy. And then the thought process is, okay, well, if L-carnitine mobilizes fat, then L-carnitine, therefore, more of it should increase mobilization of more fat. But A, L-carnitine, after it shuttles it into the cell, it detaches, goes right back outside of the cell, and then is able to shuttle more. And your body makes enough L-carnitine. So more is not better in this case. Mm -hmm. L-carnitine sucks. It's the worst thing ever. (laughs) It doesn't do shit except for burn a hole in your pocket. I've said this time and time again, and people still push L-carnitine like a motherfucker. And I'm like, dude, it doesn't. The stuff does not work. It does not burn fat. There is zero at literally zero evidence to support Mm -hmm. this notion. People still come to me with questions about it. And I always just say, why don't you just message Darone? Yeah, because I'll chew your ear off about it. It doesn't do anything. All right, moving along, Nicole, the next topic that we have after fat burners is waist trainers help to trim body fat around the midsection. Mm-hmm. And the, the one thing that I'll say about waist trainers is they make you sweat in your midsection. And I think that's really the only thing that you're getting out of it is you're sweating around your midsection and then you appear leaner because you've lost water in a certain area. Now, Some person might sit here and listen to this and logically or illogically come to the conclusion, oh, well, if I'm sweating more, then I must be burning more fat because I'm Mm. warming up that area. That's not really how the body works. (laughs) So, you know, having a waist, I see people all the time with waist trainers and they've got the gel that they put underneath and then they put the waist trainer over that. And I, I see this particularly in women. Yeah, all women, as far and as I'm concerned. I don't even know where this thing came from. Like, it's not something that. Well, the cele- listen, it's a celebrity thing. It's all over Instagram. It's, you know, it's different than like shapewear, which is another thing that is everywhere. Is sh- I don't even know what shapewear is. Shapewear is like a waist trainer, but more of a, a fabric that, sh- you know, this is the Kim Kardashian has a thing called skims. Oh, is that like the shapewear. thing that you wear underneath underneath your, your garment? Yeah, it used to be um, like I forget the other one that was kind of before It's an older school one. Like the I've the body I've seen shapers. I've seen like Spanx. I've seen Spanx. ads. You I've must seen know what ads. they are. Well, no, here's the thing. I've seen ads for those things where it's like a heavy set woman. It's not right? even with it's... a big. Well, but here's the thing, like a heavy set woman with a big belly. And then she she pulls this thing up mm-hmm. and then she puts her shirt over it. Yeah, and it just smooths she out. She looks completely different. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that's so deceiving. Well, listen, the, the Spanx are the first one. Spanx were to wear. They, it was the same thing. It's like a body shaper. It, to your point, it holds areas in and it makes things smoother under dresses that are a little bit more tight. You the know, Spanx like, what is it, like spandex? Yeah, Spanx? like I don't know. Kind of, but it's it can be like for a strapless dress. It can be just the top portion. It can be just like shorts that are that like hide cellulite and things like that. Those all kind of fall into like the 
body shaping things that women wear under clothes, which listen, if it makes you feel better, more power to you. And I, I wouldn't knock anybody for trying to feel better about themselves. Waist trainer is different because waist trainer actually claims that you lose weight by wearing it or that your hourglass shape gets stronger because or more defined because you sweat in that area. And women wear them all the time to work out in thinking that it's it's making their abs flatter, tighter. You know what? Like more. I, I always I always see on Instagram. I don't get like, it. <laughs> I'll see a girl posting a video of her working out and walking on the stairs. And then afterwards, like in her Instagram video, it's like she'll unvelcro this thing and then show yeah. this sweaty thing to the camera. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what, what does that prove that you you sweat? It's it's about in your like you said earlier, people think if you sweat more than you burn more or maybe it's just to show that you worked really hard because it's a sign of like I sweat. So I worked really hard. Waist trainers for me, for our listeners, I just really want women that are listening to this to understand that it does absolutely nothing from a weight loss standpoint, does absolutely nothing in terms of strengthening your core. It does absolutely nothing from to flatten your abs or make them tighter or that, you know, that horrible word toned. It's all bullshit. It's just such bullshit that it's ang- it makes me angry to think that women think that they need to utilize those to feel good or or feel like they're creating change. Well, I think from a core strengthening standpoint, if anything, logically, it'd probably do the opposite. You got me. This one I'm always perplexed at. And I remember when I was competing, there were girls that would wear them when we trained or would wear them just walking around the house to just feel tighter. I used to just be like, I would have worked. Like, I don't like to tell people what to do with their bodies, but I can tell you that I didn't do that. They're extremely uncomfortable. Like I've tried one on. I've tried them before. Like pe- women have given them to me. Other competitors. Well, you say. can't breathe with it on. Oh, my God. It's horrible. First of all, let me go back. If you are, have ever worn a corset as a woman. Now, I wore them as a dancer uh, in ballet. <laughs> I can't even talk. Breathing is an, is is not even an option. They're so incredibly tight and they're meant to help you lift your posture up. And it's really just a costume depending on what you're wearing. But, but they were the worst and the hardest to dance in. But sometimes you wear a corset to a different type of dress or a corset type um, top with a pair of jeans. They're horrible. Like a- any woman that's worn them will understand that the tightness to make your waist look small is so freaking uncomfortable. And I'm a jeans and sweatshirt type. Yeah, of girl, I so. put that in a category <laughs> with like wearing uncomfortable shoes and other things that women do to look great. Yeah, listen, I I will say, to be quite honest, be fully like raw, honest here, a a pair of stilettos that hurt my feet, I'll still wear (laughs) because you do feel pretty damn good in a pair of heels. All right. So moving along. Yes. Sorry. Go on. Let's get into calorie calorie trackers. This is the next one. And so the notion that calorie trackers are accurate. And first and foremost, I really want to just kind of highlight this or preface this by saying. Oftentimes, people are worried about the wrong things when they're working out. Absolutely. And they're just worried and solely concerned about how many calories am I burning through this workout? And to me, a good workout is or a good program is measuring your strength, your muscular endurance, right? Mm -hmm. It's that progressive overload that, Nicole, you and I always talk about Mm -hmm. is that are you progressing physically? Because that is going to lead to those physical changes that you're looking for. So you should be chasing after your performance goals 
rather than your physical appearance and your physical appearance will work itself out. This is what I say all the time, mm-hmm. but oftentimes, and I I've gotten this all the time when a client will text me a picture of their watch, their watch and say, look how many calories I burned. And I'm like, well, that you don't know how many calories you actually burned, especially when it's over 500 calories. And he, well, here's the thing. So here's like- why. <laughs> and there are a few studies that are done like this, that this isn't the only study that shows that calorie trackers are inaccurate, but there's an independent analysis of a number of leading brands of watches found that they're all prone to inaccurate recordings of energy expenditure. So there's a study out of the Stanford University that assessed how accurately seven different fitness trackers were able to measure two things, one heart rate, and the second thing was calories burned compared to what would be considered a gold standard for assessing heart rate and energy expenditure. And this was assessed in a lab with 60 individuals. The researchers chose fitness trackers, which A, were worn on the wrist, so fitness watches, B, continuously measure heart rate, C, have a battery life of more than 24 hours, and D, were available to consumers at the time of the study. The seven trackers evaluated were the Apple Watch, which is very popular, the Basis Peak, the Fitbit Surge. We know Fitbit is a very popular uh, brand as well. The Microsoft Band. The I don't even know how to pronounce this. Mayo or Mio, Mio Alpha, Mio Alpha 2. The Pulse On. And then the Samsung Gear S2. 60 participants, 29 men and 31 women. Participants were selected to represent a diverse range of age, height, weight, skin tone, and fitness level. So essentially what they did was they compared these to other ways of measuring or more accurate ways or what's considered quote unquote, the gold standard, right? So they did an ECG, an electrocardiogram, which is a more accurate way of saying, okay, well, like what is your heart rate? And then they compared the heart rate. And then they also used a method of indirect calorimetry to say, okay, well, let's compare this to how many calories you're burning on your watch. And what the results found were that heart rate was fairly accurate on most of the watches. So within about a 5% error, but for calories, the one that performed the best was a 27.4% error. So you're talking about a caloric difference of 27%, either higher or lower whatever it measured. Right. And then the one that had the highest error was (laughs) 92.6% inaccurate. And this is why, like when clients are so excited about the amount of calories that they're burning, and this goes for treadmills, when you have your hands on the treadmill and it's telling you how many calories you burn, the estimations are way, way off. And you have to think about this from a practical sense. If you're measuring heart rate and you're just using heart rate and the length of time that your activity is and Mm -hmm. maybe potentially what the activity is, right? So let's say you're programming uh, something on your watch that says, okay, well, I'm going to be running. That's the activity that I'm doing. And I was going to measure my heart rate. And then it's going to measure the length of time that I've been actively working. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to spit out some calories. We're neglecting to look at every other single aspect of metabolism. We're not looking at respiration, which is huge. And when you're talking about measuring your metabolic rate, one of the most accurate ways to see how many calories you're burning 
is to measure uh, CO2 and oxygen exchanges, right? So mm-hmm. we're negating that. We're negating the fact that your body has to work with hormones, adrenaline, norepinephrine, like all of these things that are going on, on inside of your body. And we're narrowing it down to essentially just three things and saying that this is what determines the amount of calories that you're burning. And to me, I'm like, when people get excited about how many calories you burn, I'm like, first of all, that's not the first, the one thing that you should be focused on when you're working out. You should be focused on performance outcomes. And second of all, it's grossly inaccurate. As high as 92.6%, the Fitbit was the one that was the best performing out of all of them. And it was still a 27% error, which that's mm-hmm. huge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the researchers concluded, they said, we assessed in a controlled laboratory setting, the reliability of seven wrist-worn devices in a diverse group of individuals performing walking, running, and cycling at low and high intensity. We found that in most settings, heart rate measurements were with acceptable error range, 5%. In contrast, none of the devices provided estimates of energy expenditure that were within an acceptable range in any setting. So when it comes to your, your Apple Watch, use it for texting, Use it for, <laughs> you know, use it for use it to, at, tell it, to tell time. That's all right? you need to do. <laughs> Maybe use it as a heart rate monitor, but mm-hmm. for calorie tracking, it's not going to give you an accurate reading. And I think this is something that people need to hear because yeah, it's funny. I Even when I tell people this, there's they still like have this glimmer of hope that they're like, yeah, but so what? I'm still burned a lot of calories. I'm like, you don't know that you have no and, clue. And. Let's let's play devil's advocate, even if they burned a little more than they think they did, you know, like even if it's a little bit more like it's still not probably not enough to create the changes that you want. I think the reason why I find this an important topic is because so many people come up and be like, Nicole, I burned 500 calories in spin class. And I'm like, maybe half. I'm like, okay, And then, you know, one of two things happens from a food standpoint, they eat back their calories and probably then some, and they didn't even burn 500. So now they're way out of whack and, or they're thinking that from workout to workout that they're burning like thousands of calories during the week and they're overeating thousands of calories during the week and everything just gets so off. And they're really not focusing on like, I'm like, I'm with you. I'm like, did you go up and wait on your back squat? Can you do four more push-ups in the month than you did when you started? Can you, I don't know, what's your leg press like this week? Where are the performance goals that are actually going to provide you with some substantial ability to make change versus just chasing a number that you're burning when you do a workout? All right. You want to move on to the next one? Yeah. What we got? Do we have anything else to say about that? No, I think we got, I think we covered, I think we covered it. it. I think we took our stance on that. All yeah. right. So the next one is that testosterone boosters work. And I'm talking about your everyday, like you walk into a GNC or a vitamin shop or one of these uh, vitamin stores and you look on the shelf and there's a testosterone boosting supplement um, there. This I'm going to exclude things like SARMs here in this conversation. Uh, SARMs are something that me personally, I haven't researched a tremendous amount. I have, you know, read a few things that they're not really the safest bet for you. So I I don't want to jump into the conversation around SARMs because SARMs are something that we do find that they are somewhat beneficial in boosting testosterone, but uh, they're not a, they're not the safest alternative B they're They haven't really been thoroughly studied in terms of safety. So it's not something that I often recommend. Uh, It's something that in bodybuilding culture became huge. 
I don't even remember how many years back, uh, you know, five, six, maybe eight years ago. But it's also something that like I I'm pretty sure it was like cartering. They gave mice pretty significant doses of it, but uh, it did end up leading to uh, cancer growth in mice. So I want to kind of exclude SARMs in this conversation. And I want to talk about some common ingredients that have been proposed uh, in research or not in research, in industry to work that really don't really do anything. And one of the biggest ones is tribulus. So tribulus terrestris is a plant extract that has been shown to increase libido and increase erections or the ability to like uh, to affect erectile dysfunction in lab rats. And the supplement industry, Nicole's over here holding her mouth because she's about to laugh, but <laughs> The supplement industry took this as like, okay, well, great. It increases testosterone, but there's no data to support that it increases testosterone or even has these effects of libido and um, affecting erections in humans. So this is one thing that you'll see it on labels. You'll see it in, in uh, testosterone products, testosterone boosting products still to date. And it just, it doesn't do anything. The other thing is deaspartic acid, which it, it we we thought it was promising when this stuff was first kind of proposed and you know early on some data came out and we thought it was promising there does appear to be an increase in testosterone in some subjects acutely for 6 to 12 days and while this may persist to like 30 to 60% in infertile men um it's reduced to baseline within a month so it's not something that's going to work for you long-term. It's kind of like it increases testosterone, then it goes back down and it levels off. There's a study in 2013 where uh, athletic men with healthy testosterone levels followed a 28-day training uh, or weight training routine. Half of them took three grams of deaspartic acid per day and half of them took a placebo. All participants reported an increase in strength and muscle mass, but no one in the deaspartic acid group experienced increases in testosterone, which is something that's very easy to test. You just basically test testosterone levels, right? A 2017 study also found that deaspartic acid neither raised testosterone levels or increased resistance training outcomes. Furthermore, research published in 2020 found that taking three grams of deaspartic acid did not affect testosterone levels in humans while taking six grams, doubling that dosage, appeared to reduce testosterone levels. And this we're, we're testing uh, free testosterone and it, it appears to reduce free testosterone levels. So deaspartic acid, there was a glimmer of hope there, but I'm going to say also testosterone boost that doesn't work. Now, there are people out there chasing increased levels of testosterone and there is an issue in America, or maybe even worldwide, I don't know, but there is an issue with declining testosterone levels and declining fertility amongst men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say, and it's interesting, I recently had a conversation with somebody that had reached out to me and talked about hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. And I had said, okay, well, what, like, is that, that's your last stop, right? Is yeah. injecting yourself with testosterone is your last stop. What steps have you taken up until you went to the doctor and the doctor said, okay, take some testosterone, some, some hormone replacement therapy. And he's like, well, what do you mean? What steps? Like what kind of steps? And I'm like, well, diet and exercise. I mean, <laughs> like the, I think sedentary Better lifestyle, sleep, sedentary. You know? Yep. So like sedentary lifestyle, 
definitely leads to decreases in testosterone levels, increases in fat tissue. And we know that increases in fat tissue also lead to increase in estrogen levels, right? And this is evident in when we see kids, for example, right? Kids who are fatter growing up that end up with a significant amount of breast tissue. Like there's an actual thing, like there's a, um, like insurance companies will cover gynecomastia surgery where you're mm-hmm. removing breast tissue for males that grew up. I don't know if they're still covering it now, but I know that at, at a time, maybe they're still doing it, but they would cover uh, basically almost kind of like breast reduction surgery, right? G- gynecomastia surgery to remove breast tissue in individuals that grew up heavier mm-hmm. and developed it as a result of that. So yeah. why is this has happened? It happens because increased adiposity is what is leading to increased estrogen levels. It, it's affecting your hormones, right? So mm-hmm. as we get fatter as a nation, right? And people are like, well, I'm trying to, like research is trying to solve the problem of fertility. And I'm like, well, get, be less fat. I mean, that's really what it comes down to for me. And I'm, and I'm looking at it and I'm like, listen, there are other factors too, but we're stressed out. We're not sleeping enough. We're not eating properly. We're fatter than ever. We're not exercising and exercising boosts testosterone, right? So if you want a testosterone, don't get it or a testosterone booster, don't get it on the shelf and try things before you go to the doctor with your two, with your levels of testosterone at 200 and your doctor just says, okay, I'm going to put you on testosterone. Try other things first, like lifestyle mm-hmm. factors. Yeah. The other things that you can consider and you can refer back to Nicole, I think it was episode two or three where we talked about testosterone optimization yeah. Um, if you're deficient in zinc, mm-hmm. then that's going to potentially affect your testosterone levels. Uh, zinc is also a anti-aromatase. So if you supplement with zinc and you have high estrogen levels, it's going to prevent testosterone from converting into estrogen. And if you're deficient in vitamin D, that's also going to affect your testosterone levels. And we've got a pretty decent amount of research showing that individuals like from a strength standpoint, individuals that are deficient in vitamin D and then given vitamin D supplements, uh, they end up with not only higher testosterone levels, but they end up increasing their strength over a period of time. Now, mm-hmm. that's not to say if you have normal vitamin D levels or normal zinc levels that that's going to help you. But oftentimes what we find is as people get older, like they reach 40, 50, 60, uh, they tend to have lower zinc levels. They tend to be more, more likely to be deficient. And if you don't get outside enough, you're not getting enough vitamin D. And those are two things that will help to increase testosterone from a supplement standpoint, but lifestyle factors are always going to come first. Mm-hmm. Agree. All right. So Nicole, I think I want to do one more. Okay. And I think the one that we'll tackle doesn't even really seem like it fits here, but we'll tackle it anyway. Throw fresh, it fresh produce is better than frozen. Yeah. So this is part of our, this is the fruit loss challenge. One you wanted to throw in. Right. So there's a couple of angles that I could take here. Okay. And the first angle that I'll take is, you know, that people were surprised when and they they were like, oh, wow, great tip. And I actually learned this years ago. I I learned this when I was taking a food science class in undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I had to refer back to my textbook when I had a client question because I had a client ask me, why are frozen mangoes, Mm -hmm. same quantity, less carbohydrates than the fresh ones? And I was like digging and digging and digging. And I was like, I remember there's something. And then I remembered it and I went back and I was so proud of myself. I was like, yeah, I found the answer. 
So <laughs> now this isn't to say that it's better or worse, right? At the end of the day, we're talking about total carb intake for the day, total calorie intake for the day, right. depending on what your goals are, right? But the fresh fruit, and this is also going to lead to the nutrients as well and mm -hmm. where I'm going to get into this, right? So I always say it's a matter of preference. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes people, people will think, well, fresh produce has more nutrients mm -hmm. and it's actually the opposite except for your macronutrients, right? So from a macronutrient standpoint, frozen fruit, because it's flash frozen, like as soon as you pick it, you freeze it. Mm -hmm. So what happens in nature is that acids and sugars are kind of like interchangeable, right? So a fruit before it ripens, it's more acidic. And then it has more of like a sour tart taste to it. Mm -hmm. And then once it ripens, it becomes sweeter because a lot of that acid will convert into sugar. So what happens when you freeze that, those mangoes, those frozen mangoes, when you freeze them, they end up being lower in sugar and higher in acid because they haven't been able to, what does freezing it do? It, it slows down the ripening process, right? Mm -hmm. Still ripening, but at a very, very slow rate. So you end up with a lower amount of carbohydrates, but you also end up with a higher amount of nutrients because as fruits and vegetables ripen, they also lose nutrients. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about transporting things, for example, right? A lot mm -hmm. of the food that we're getting is from other countries. Mm -hmm. So they're transported, they're exposed to heat in a truck, like all of these things, and they're losing nutrients. That's not to say that it's bad that you're not getting any nutrients by the time it gets here. And by the time you take it home and cook it, they are kind of, a lot of things are I guess, kind of refrigerated to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. Except maybe like apples and things. I don't think those are kept cold in the supermarket, right? Mm -mm. But um, they are actually losing nutrients. So from the moment that you pick a fruit, it starts losing nutrients all the way to the supermarket, all the way to your uh, kitchen cabinet, mm -hmm. your refrigerator, all the way to your mouth, right? But when it's frozen, you're not really losing nutrients. So Oftentimes people think, oh, well, fresh is better. Now, I will argue that fresh is better from a taste perspective. Mm -hmm. I always like doing, I like doing fresh spinach and my egg whites. I love doing fresh broccoli and cooking that. I love doing fresh asparagus, green beans. I feel like if they're frozen, like I end up with more like watery kind of yeah. mushy when I cook it. And I don't like that. So from a taste standpoint, there are a lot of things that I'll choose to do fresh over frozen. But sometimes people just won't do frozen produce because they think it's less healthy. Right. And, and sometimes my argument for them is, well, if it's more convenient and it's going to keep you more on track, exactly. then why not the frozen? Plus the frozen is actually more nutrient dense. Yeah. Uh, you hit the nail on the head for me. I will say to clients all the time, the frozen option, even if it's a backup plan that you have just in the refrigerator or your freezer for the times where you haven't prepared something and you can utilize it quickly, they're not as bad as you think they are. And that's really important because I do think people are really afraid, afraid of trying different things or utilizing different ways to cook food or eat food. And I think that really does, it limits the options so much that then they feel like, if they don't do it the healthy, organic, perfect way, then it's not worth doing. And they're, you know, diving into things that are really not as optimal to eat. You know, to me, grocery shopping is always like choose your battles kind of thing. Yeah. Right. I will say that I do love doing uh, if I do cauliflower rice, I do that frozen. 
I'm not, first of all, I'm not ricing my own cauliflower. That's never happening. <laughs> Second of all. Well, listen, everything that I've seen in the grocery store now is cauliflowered. There's cauliflower pizza, there's cauliflower rice, there's cauliflower yeah, you know, buffalo wings, the ca- there's cauliflower. The cauliflower I mean, it's so ridiculous. The cauliflower pizza thing is like, you're not ruining pizza for me. It's not happening. I'm from New York. I'm going to Manhattan and getting my dollar slice of pizza, right? But the um, the cauliflower rice. But it's just rice, silly that everything's cauliflower. Yeah, literally. I mean, and it's fine. Uh, I did a lot of cauliflower rice when I did keto for that stint that I did keto. And I do actually genuinely enjoy eating cauliflower rice. I think it's good. I do it with soy sauce and I cut up some scallions and throw that yeah. in there, some salt and pepper, maybe some other seasoning. Uh, and I, you know, have that with a meal if I decide that I want to have, you know, something lower carb or maybe I ate a cookie earlier in the day and I yeah. ate up my Balance carbs for the out. day. Right. Balance it out. Um, but that is five myths busted. And that is some more myths busted added to episode number 57, where we busted five other myths. So if you want to refer back to that, check out episode 57 for our first five myths. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 